Reading from Romans chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do not, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be a tribulation of distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. As we carry on this morning in our series in the book of Romans, the Romans road to salvation, we're still early in the book and we're still talking primarily about sin, which is Paul's big theme in some respects in these first two and a half chapters or so. But if there's a key verse to Paul's letter to the Romans, a verse that defines the theme of the whole book, a verse that we all probably ought to have memorized by now, it would actually be two verses, Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, where the Apostle Paul wrote, "'For I am not ashamed of the gospel.'" For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous or the just shall live by faith. And I say that this is a verse we need to have fixed firmly in our mind and to carry forward with us because as the thesis statement for the book, the righteous or the just shall live by faith, needs to be part of our consideration of every other text that we're going to encounter in Paul's epistle. Eventually, we're going to come to chapter 5. It'll probably be a while given the pace that we're taking here but we'll come to chapter 5 verse 1 that says therefore since we have been justified by faith same word more literally have been made righteous by faith we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ it's so important that we understand this idea of what it is to be justified by faith, what it is that the just shall live by faith. If we haven't grasped the meaning of this verse here at the beginning of the book of Romans, then it would be difficult, to say the very least, to grasp what the Apostle Paul is saying in chapter 5 and beyond chapter 5. And we'd also run the risk of falling into antinomianism or some other erroneous understanding of what the grace of God means in the lives of his people. But to understand Paul's statement, the just shall live by faith, we need to consider that word live 
for just a minute. What does it mean to live by faith? And we need to consider this because we've become accustomed to thinking of that statement, the just shall live by faith, as basically equivalent to a declaration like that we find in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Same thing, right? For by grace you have been saved by faith, the just shall live by faith. And if we take it that way, then we're thinking of the word live in contrast to the word die. And it seems that we're being told that by faith, we can somehow avoid the spiritual and eternal death that is the lot of all mankind, according to what the apostle wrote in chapter 5, verse 12, where he said, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. It seems that way because it is that way. This is absolutely true. When we talk about the just shall live by faith, that is one aspect of what we're talking about here. We're talking about salvation from the eternal punishment of body and soul by grace alone, through faith alone, and in Christ alone. For there is no salvation in anyone else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This is the word of the Lord. You can say, thanks be to God. This is the word of the Lord. This is the gospel of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. As Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 1, verse 8, 2, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached, a gospel contrary to this one, let him be accursed. So let us profess what needs to be professed here. When Paul said the righteous or the just shall live by faith, he was saying, in the words of the old Puritan Matthew Henry, the faith that justifies us is no less than our taking Christ for Savior and becoming true Christians. We live by faith because in Christ and by faith in him we are born again to life eternal. But the old Puritan wasn't done there. He went on writing from faith and grafting us into Christ to faith deriving virtue from him as our root. Both of these ideas implied in the next words, the just shall live by faith. We are just by faith. There is faith which justifies us, but we also live by faith. There is faith maintaining us. And so there is a righteousness from faith to faith. Faith is all in all, both in the beginning and in the progress of a Christian life. So we do live by faith in the sense that we're saved by faith, but it's equally true, and this may be the more important part of this message for people today, that saving faith, the faith that saves us inevitably changes the way that we live and walk in this world. I can't remember exactly who it was. It might have been Charles Spurgeon, somebody back in that time frame, made the statement that if the faith that saved you didn't change you, then it probably didn't save you either, and that's true. And we need to keep this firmly in mind as we proceed farther into chapter 2, because having established that salvation, the righteousness of God, is from faith to faith, or from faith for faith, 
as a central thesis of this letter, Paul then went on to write, not about the things that we believe, which we might have anticipated, but in the immediate case, about the things that we do. Beginning with chapter 2, verse 3, Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Well, we've looked at that in some detail last Lord's Day, and the answer, of course, is no. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? The answer for that question is yes. When we pass judgment on others and do the same things ourselves, we are presuming on the riches of God's kindness toward us. We are assuming that because God hasn't judged us yet, somehow he won't judge us ever. When in reality, according to verse 5, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And then verse 6. He will render to each one according to his deeds, according to his works. Now the thing is, as we consider what Paul is saying here, he will render to each one according to his works. It's possible to fall into a ditch on either side of this road. There are those who we call antinomians, meaning against law who will insist that since salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, nothing else matters. All that matters is that we have come to Jesus and have prayed the sinner's prayer or walked the aisle or spent some time on the anxious bench or whatever the particular means was by which we think we came to know the Lord. And beyond that, there's nothing else. I mentioned this way back at the beginning of the series, but when I was a child or a very young, young adult, there were tracks going around that you know, gave the short version of the Romans' road to salvation, and you walked through that, and you got to the end. It said, do you want to experience God's gift of eternal life? Pray this prayer. And you prayed the prayer, and then there's a little contract on the back page of this thing where you date it and you sign it and it is there to remind you that on this date you prayed that prayer and we were offered the advice, now carry that around with you everywhere you go all the time in your wallet or in your purse or in your pocket, whatever you have to do. If it starts to wear out, sign another one and carry that one around so that no matter what happens, no matter where you find yourself, if you start to have questions about Whether or not you're truly saved, all you have to do is whip out that piece of paper and have a look. Oh, yeah, yeah, June 17, 1967. I walked an aisle and I prayed the prayer. That should reassure me, even though I'm in the process of committing a felony right now. I mean, obviously, I shouldn't doubt my salvation because of that. That was the way that some looked at it. That God's grace was to save us in the midst of our sin without actually changing our lives, without actually imparting any active righteousness from Christ such that a person could be born again of the Spirit of God and then just go on living in the same cesspool of sin that he was saving us from. Salvation from punishment was considered all there is and such salvation is the end of the discussion. That's antinomianism. It's lawlessness. 
others pulling this verse screaming and bleeding from the context of Paul's epistle to the Romans will combine it with a few other misquotes, many from the Gospels and from other parts of Scripture, and they will insist that salvation is ultimately by works. Some will say God is keeping a running tally. Now, there's a chart like we used to have on the wall of our Sunday school class. And if you have more gold stars than black checks on the chart when you die, then you get to go to heaven. I once attended the funeral of someone who had repudiated her faith and walked away from God, but who still claimed to live by the Ten Commandments. And the minister who led her memorial service just preached her right into heaven from Deuteronomy 10. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good? Now, of course, there's more to the passage, and one could really get into the details of, all right, you know, she claimed to live by the commandments of God, but to what extent did she? Has anybody ever really done that? There's lots more that could be part of this discussion, but who cares about the details? Well, the Apostle Paul, for one, if the former error, antinomianism, could rightly be named easy believism, I think we could denominate the latter error as easy legalism. Because it's not even the hardcore legalism that the Pharisees preached who said, you must keep the law, you must tithe, mint, cumin, and dill. And all of these, like, be particular about these things, folks. That was legalism, too. This is a simple legalism. This is the kind of legalism that looks at the Ten Commandments and said, well, you know, 60% is still a passing grade. It's not great, you know, your dad's not going to give you a car when you graduate for that. But sure, six out of ten, why not? Pretty sure most of us are in on that basis. But Paul repudiates both of these heresies. For, as it says in verse 11, God shows no partiality. Now, Paul had something else in mind with that statement. But before we go there, let's consider the context of the statement that God will render to each one according to his works. Verses 6 through 10. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also to the Greek." Again, depending on which commentaries you want to read and believe, different approaches to this text are possible. But there's one area, one issue about which they all have substantial agreement, and that's this. Paul saw only two kinds of people in the world. He saw those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, and on the other hand, those who are self-seeking. And do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. And the question is not about those people. Those people who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. Paul kind of made the point about that in that latter half of Romans chapter 1. 
But the question is about the former group. Who are the people who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality? Is this expression sort of roughly equivalent to verse 14, which says, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. We're going to look into that more in a couple of weeks. But the answer is probably yes, but we need to be careful. This morning it's enough to understand that what is not being said in this text is that Paul is proposing an alternative way of salvation. There are those who have believed that, who have believed if you can just be good enough, then you're going to make it. And if you're not good enough, then you're going to need to rely on Christ. thing is, nobody's good enough. Paul's making that point over and over and over again in these early chapters of the book of Romans. And the question would have to be, what is good enough? Now, I think intellectually, as we sit here this morning, most of us are saying, well, we know that's not true. We've already seen it. We've seen the sinfulness of sin in Romans chapter 1. We've continued talking about that in the early verses of chapter 2. We know Paul's stance on this. Intellectually, we know that no one can be good enough to be accepted by God to make it into heaven, if you want to think of it in those terms, on the basis of their own works. And yet again, and this is why I referenced that funeral a little bit earlier in the sermon, how many of us have been in those situations where we know that this person that we loved really probably didn't know the Lord, and yet we desperately want to say there was something there. In those moments, we turn to this idea that good enough is good enough. The Apostle Paul is not suggesting that for a second. He's not suggesting that there are some who will be saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ and others who will merit eternal life by their own good works. Now, the other side of this is that he's talking about the Jew and the Gentile, those who have the law and those who don't. And it's clear in Scripture, and we would presume out of Scripture as well, that there are examples of people who came to God apart from the Old Covenant Scriptures. As a matter of fact, all you have to do is read Hebrews chapter 11. Everyone listed in that Heroes of the Faith chapter, as we sometimes know it, up to and inclusive of Moses, lived prior to the giving of the Old Covenant at Sinai. And yet the very reason they are listed in that great chapter is because they were, if I can borrow a phrase that the writer of the Hebrews used to describe Enoch, commended as having pleased God. We can think of all of those people in Hebrews chapter 11. We could add to that list some other figures like Melchizedek and Jethro, who was Moses' father-in-law, not the guy in the Beverly Hillbillies, and Rahab, and others who did the same, others who pleased God. 
The thing is, if you read through the list in Hebrews 11 particularly, you very quickly discover that the good that they did, which pleased God, they did by faith. There's not one single person mentioned there who it says, and you know what, they didn't really know God at all, but they were good people, and they did good stuff, and they were committed unto God. As a matter of fact, Hebrews 11, verse 6, and without faith it is impossible to please him. For who would ever draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. In other words, the salvation of all of those who are listed in Hebrews 11 and in other parts of the Old Testament and perhaps even some in the New was by grace through faith. There is no other way. It was by grace through faith, and today it is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Paul is not laying out the possibility of certainly not universal salvation. We know that. He's not even laying out the possibility that as long as a person has faith in something... If he's sincere enough, then that's going to carry him through. He's saying that he, or the writer of the Hebrews is saying that whoever comes to God must not only believe that he exists, to use Paul's language, to see God's eternal power and divine nature through the things that have been made, but then having believed, having seen that, he must also live as one who seeks to please God, as one who by patience and well-doing seeks for glory and honor and incorruptibility, which is to say, one who patiently seeks for God. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones put it like this, that is it. These people are seeking glory, they are seeking honor that God alone can give, and they are looking forward to this state of incorruptibility, this immortality, this state of being perfect and pure that can never end, beyond sin, above sin, eternally perfect in the presence of God. And how do we know that this seeking after glory, honor, and immortality is really a seeking after God? Well, consider the contrast. Verse 8 describes the rest of mankind as those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. So those who seek glory and honor and immortality for their own gain well, you know, I'd sure like to be good enough to get into heaven because the alternative isn't very pleasant. Those who seek those things for their own gain and not for the glory of God actually find themselves in the latter group. And furthermore, consider their end to those who, by patience and well-being, seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. We know what it means to seek God in such a way that we get eternal life. More on that in just a second. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also to the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. And this is where we find that statement. God shows no partiality. And in verse 12, 
follows immediately. Ignore the paragraph break between verse 11 and verse 12, depending on what Bible you might be using. God shows no partiality for all who have sinned without the law, and truly, that's everyone, all have sinned, will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. See, Paul's statement that there's no partiality with God is not saying that God is going to save anyone and everyone who lives a basically decent life regardless of whether or not they come to him through faith in Jesus Christ. It's actually saying quite the opposite. The author is saying that in the end, God's righteous judgment will fall on all sinners, which is to say God's righteous judgment will fall on everyone. All those who have sinned without the law, together with all those who have sinned under the law. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first, and also the Greek. This is the sense in which God shows no partiality. And we need to hear this message. We need to understand that the goal is not to be good people in our own estimation or good people in our comparison to others as we've seen in the last couple of weeks or even good people in a man-centered way of keeping the law. None of these things help us at all if we think to commend ourselves to God by our own effort and merit because as we will see in weeks to come, Romans 3, none is righteous. How many is none? No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. As Jesus said in John chapter 3, this is the judgment. Light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than light because their works were evil. This is the judgment, but this is our hope as well, for light has come into the world. For God so loved the world, Jesus said in that same context, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him, whoever comes to him in faith, should not perish but have eternal life. This is the judgment. Light has come into the world, but this is our hope as well. That light came into the world so that whoever, by grace through faith, believes in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior should not perish but have eternal life. And this is our only hope. There is no other way of salvation. It's our only hope, and it is the only hope of the world, and as such, it ought to be our mission in this fallen world. As a people of God, we are sent out to call all people to repent, not just from the obvious and egregious sins that were listed in Romans chapter 1, but to repent from vain and useless works, to repent of all of those feeble human efforts that we make to try to commend ourselves to God and to seek salvation in none other than Christ Jesus alone. I noted earlier, and I do this a lot, 
There is salvation in no one else. No one. No other religion, no other philosophy, no other way of life. No one. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. In other words, those who have believed apart from the law will be saved by the righteousness of Christ alone. And those who have believed under the law will be saved by the righteousness of Christ alone. There is nothing else. This is the gospel of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May the Lord give us ears to hear, but not only that, words to proclaim this great salvation indiscriminately to all men, for God shows no partiality. And this gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Let's look to God in prayer. <clears throat> Father, against the black backdrop of our lives, all of the times that we have done that which we should not have done and failed to do that which we should, all of the times when words were spoken in haste, all the times when words remain unspoken because of fear. All of the times, Father, that we have done what is right in our own eyes instead of doing what you require in your holy word. The glory and the light of the gospel of grace shines with even greater clarity. Thank you, Father, that you did not leave us to perish in sin and darkness but it pleased you to send your only son, Jesus Christ, into this world to die for us, to bear the penalty for our sin, to shed his blood as payment so that as we trust in him alone, we can be assured that we have salvation and life and light in the holy name of Jesus, our Savior. Even as we pray in that name, amen.